So here we are again, find ourselves in week three, it is, of our second part of this summer series, Caution, Danger Ahead. A, a look at the time frame two months out from the crucifixion as Jesus is preparing to make his final trip to Jerusalem. And we call it Caution, Danger Ahead, and we have all this stuff around, and I understand we're going to have more stuff that's going to show up here in the next couple of weeks, uh, to remind us that it was a dangerous time for him. The Sadducees, Pharisees, most any other seas you can think of were trying to uh, catch him doing something wrong so that they'd have a reason to destroy his ministry, a reason to uh, send him to the cross maybe before it was his time. I think uh, before we begin, let's, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you again for a, a day, a time that you've ordained that we come together to worship you corporately. We're, of course, supposed to live a lifestyle of worship, but ever so often you give us an opportunity to come and sit together, sing together, pray together, praise together. And this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, as we come today, take away from each of our minds the distractions from this last week, the things that went on, the things that ate up our time last week. And as we prepare for a new week this week for many of us, um, allow us to leave the anxiousness about the things to come this week outside of here. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us. Bring peace and, and wisdom discernment and understanding to what we talk about today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 19 and we're all the way over after nearly three years. <laughs> Matthew chapter 19 verses uh, 16 through 22, I think is where I stopped for today, 16 through 22. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some on either side here. Please, please come and get one or we'll bring them down to you. If you don't have a Bible that's in an easy-to-understand language, take one of those. It's yours. It's a gift from Renovation Church for you. We want you to be able to read and to appreciate and understand God's Word when, when you're away from here as well. And as always, the Scripture should be, except for one that I put in early this morning, they should be on the screen for you to follow along. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. In this church, we believe that this is the infallible Word of God, is the only standard that we have for our life and for our faith. So listen to God's Word. Now a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, 
What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. And Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, interesting choice to use perfect there. In some translations, it's complete In other translations, it's saved. In other translations, if you want to receive eternal life. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Here comes another one of those messages about money well not really not really Uh, I do believe that this is a specific message that Jesus had for this specific person about a specific problem but I think it transcends that to every one of us sitting in here today wealthy or not wealthy We could be on our last dime, and the message still applies to us. And I hope you will see that as we go through. When you you look at the Bible, when you study it thoughtfully, I mean really pour through the Scriptures, you find that things are wonderfully reasonable and ordered and balanced throughout Scripture. That's why it's so dangerous to pick up a Bible and open it to a page and read this, and this is, well, this is for my life now. This is it. You've got to see the context that that's written in to really understand what's being said. Matthew 18 and 19 is an example of a chunk, a good chunk of Scripture that we've been looking at this, uh, this summer that's reasonable and it's ordered and it's balanced. And as we've said before throughout this Caution Danger Ahead series, these chapters are about the character of those people who will be members of the kingdom of heaven. King, that's what Matthew calls them, kingdom of God, the other gospel writers refer to them as. And here in Matthew 18 and 19, we find their characters are tied to relationships, special relationships that we've looked at. Uh, for example, a relationship to other believers... And they ask the question, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Uh, Relationships that are tied to those who sin against us. And remember the question was, well, how many times must I forgive somebody? Relationships to a husband or to a wife. And the question was asked, well, what is marriage? Is it okay for me to divorce? Questions, relationships that are related to children. That's what Walt talked to us last week about, the next generation, the children. And the question there was, well, should we include them or 
or not? Do they have a place here? And then today, relationships, our relationships to money and possessions. Who then? Who then can go to heaven? Who can be saved? And who can't? And in careful study, sometimes we find material, we found it here, sometimes we find material that's startling, that's jarring to us, material that rocks our foundation, material that rocks our very lifestyles, material that that rocks our value systems, the value systems that we have uh, instituted. And in the material here in Matthew 19, Jesus, as we saw last week, first, first he corrects his disciples for driving away those people who were bringing their children. Remember that? Verse uh, 14, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Yeah. Yeah. Yet in the very next paragraph, what I just read you today, Jesus seems to drive away this passionate young man. A young man who wants to become his disciple. And he says, no. Kind of drives him away. The man's allowed to go because he's unwilling to part with his possessions. But I think even more puzzling than that, as you look at... Matthew 19 is is the end of the chapter over about verse uh, 29 where the chapter seems to end with this promise of Jesus to his disciples that they will have houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children and fields in this lifetime. It just makes no sense if you pick it up and read one little portion of it. The contrasts are so confusing And it takes some careful thought to understand how they all fit together. And I hope that's what I can do for you today as we look at this account in verses 16 through 22, the account of the what we've come to call the rich young man. The Gospels contrast, and we can compare the three Gospel writers. I ask you to do that often anyway, to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if the account is is talked about, or recorded, I should say, is recorded in more than one of them. Let's, let's look at the details. Because Matthew's looking at it as one eyewitness, and this eyewitness over here that has a little different point of view, Luke, maybe he has a, something else to say. He saw something that Matthew maybe didn't see. And then Mark has another take, and John has another take. Well, three of the gospel writers record this account about this ruler that comes to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three talk about him. They all three say that he's rich. So he must have been rich, whatever rich was in that that culture of that day. Matthew adds in verse 20 that he was young. We wouldn't know that he was young had we not read Matthew. And Luke, uh, the count is in Luke chapter 18, and in verse 18, Luke says he was a ruler. Wow. Well, probably, I mean, he wasn't like the president or anything. He was a ruler in the local synagogue. That would have been a, a powerful position for a little community. 
to be a ruler in the synagogue. He was the first person, and at first glance, as I just, as I just think about it, probably the only person I can think of as an example of someone who came to Jesus and went away not saved. Interesting. And one striking point for me is that Jesus didn't go after him. He didn't go and try to win him over in spite of the fact that he was apparently very serious about his questions to Jesus. And he was very passionate. He really wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. That was his heart's desire, to be a disciple of Jesus. And just think how radically different that approach is, Jesus' approach, to the approach of mainline evangelical churches of today. What would they do in a similar situation? And I guess before we go any further, I have to kind of give you a definition, my definition of mainline evangelical. Evangelical is a term that's been bannered around a lot in politics these days, a block of constituents that vote one way or another way. Um, mainline, by mainline, what I mean is it's, it's the main denominational churches, uh, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, uh, Episcopal, Lutheran, you know, those mainline denominations, as they're called. And for evangelical, to me, and I think you would find probably this to be true with the definition if you looked it up in a dictionary or somewhere. To me, uh, evangelicals are those who emphasize the teachings and the authority of the Scriptures, particularly the New Testament, but they emphasize the teachings and the authority of Scripture over the institutional authority of the church. For example, the Catholic Church where the authority of the church is what rules. Evangelicals would say it's God's word that rules. That's what rules. And above everything else, they would stress as one of the as the main tenet of their faith that salvation, that eternal life, that being made perfect or complete or whatever term you want to use for that, being saved is made possible only by faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, he died for our sins. And if you don't have faith in that, then you can't be saved. So the evangelical would believe that the scriptures are infallible. This is the word of God. The whole thing is the word of God. They would also believe that Jesus paid for our salvation. It's nothing we have done or can ever do to earn our salvation. Okay, so that, when I say mainline evangelicals, that's what we're talking about. You may know some of those people. I want us to take a closer look and think about what Jesus just did in this uh, passage of Scripture that we read. Here's this man. He was clean cut. Well, he's a ruler in the synagogue, so he would dress a certain way. He would conform to the manner of dress of the day, have his hair cut a certain way, wear particular clothes, all this. He would carry himself 
stately if he was the ruler in the temple. People would look up to him. He was passionate. We could tell by the conversation with Jesus that he was passionate about his life as a rich young ruler. He wanted to be saved. Oh, he wanted to be. What else must I do? He wasn't quite sure that what he was doing was enough. What else do I have to do, rabbi, teacher? What else do I, must I do in order to be saved? I really want to be saved now. He even asked a good question in verse 16. He said, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? See, he thinks it's something he can do. Evangelicals think something Jesus did. It's nothing I can do. And that kind of a counter, most of today's evangelicals would give the man a three or a four point presentation of the gospel. They would ask him to commit his life to Jesus Christ, and then they would send him away with the assurance that they were saved. That was it. Unfortunately and sadly, we evangelicals are some of the worst in the world at follow-up with these people, discipling people, making sure that they understand what, we, what they just did, you know? We want them to make that decision, but then we want to go on to the next person. Okay, who's next? Instead of spending our time and energy on them to disciple them and mentor them and bring them along in their faith. That's what the evangelical does. Take a closer look and think. Jesus did none of that, did he? He didn't do any of that. Jesus used Jesus used the alpha model. Or let's say alpha uses the Jesus model. <laughs> if that flies better. First, Jesus challenged the young man in regard to his ideas about God. Verse 17 says, why do you ask me what's good? There's only one who is good. And in Alpha, the first two weeks, we ask questions like, who is Jesus? Why did Jesus die? Secondly, Jesus reminded him of God's written law. Verses 18 and 19, he says, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. You ever heard those before? Where are they from? Commandments, the Ten Commandments. Where do you find the Ten Commandments? Well, good. I mean, that's even more specific than I was asking for. You find them here. You find them in the Bible. The Ten Commandments are in the Bible. You ain't going to find them in a schoolroom somewhere anymore. You might find them in a courtroom. I'm not even sure whether they allow that or not. But this is where you find them, the Ten Commandments. And in Alpha, we ask, how and why should I read the Bible? And finally, 
Jesus called for repentance and faith in himself. Verse 21, he says, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And in Alpha, we say, sorry, thank you, please. A little prayer, a simple prayer of forgiveness, forgiveness and repentance. God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done that, that I shouldn't do, for those commandments that I've broken. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me, to pay the penalty for my sins. And please send the Holy Spirit to, to dwell in me, to empower me so that I can do the things that I need to do. Because I can't do it by myself. And for Jesus, you know, that's the end of the interview. He just ended the interview right there. This young man was rich. And because he was unwilling to pay the cost, Scripture says that he went away sorrowfully. He went away sad because he was unwilling to pay the cost. Now, I've got to ask you, is that the way to win people to Jesus? Is it? Is that the way that you go about winning people to Jesus? Well, Jesus thought so. That's the way he did it. He demands a turning from everything else to himself. as a condition of Christ's following. And he demands it of everybody. Not just one or two individuals. For every one of us, we have to turn from everything else and turn to him individually. Much of the church today, sad to say, evangelicals included, aren't preaching the same gospel that Jesus was preaching. Because they fail miserably in spelling out that there's a cost to this. We're so interested in telling people about the free gift that we forget, well, there is a cost. It does cost something. It's not all about uh, singing kumbaya. It's not all about coming together on Sunday mornings or whenever it is that you attend worship. It's not all about smiling at one another as we attend our nice church arenas, wherever they might be. It's not all about saying, God loves you and he wants you to be wealthy and prosperous. It's not all about living a la-di-da, pie-in-the-sky kind of existence. That's not what he was talking about. So what had Jesus done? What had he done with this young man in the scripture that we just read today? He had confronted that man with the holiness of God. No one is good but God. He had confronted him with the holiness of God and with the law's demands. He said, those commandments, they have demands that come with them. The Ten Commandments, you said it, it's in Exodus. It also appears in Deuteronomy. 
you know, they kind of broke the first ones and had to have them replaced. So Moses thought he'd read it to them again. Uh, so it's two places in the scripture. I think it would probably be worth our time to look at those for my benefit. For, I mean, I, I'm sure that you guys know them from memory, but for me, it would be good for me to refresh my mind as to what these Ten Commandments are. So in Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And here comes the commandments. One, you shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number three. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And number ten, kind of like the David Letterman list, isn't it? Uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's it. Pretty simple, huh? And in listing these Ten Commandments, Jesus refers, for the, for the rich young ruler, Jesus refers to some of them. Interesting. He refers to number six about murder, number seven about adultery, number eight about stealing, number nine about false testimony. Then he backs up to number five about honoring your parents in that order. And he skips number ten about coveting. And he goes over to a piece of scripture that's found in Leviticus uh, chapter hmm, 19, verse uh, 18, that says, Love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> he includes that as part of the commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of uses it as a summary. Did you know that the first four of the Ten Commandments are about our relationship to God? 
And the last six of the Ten Commandments, this is why I put them on your sheet there so you'd see them. The last six of the Ten Commandments are about our relationship to our neighbor. First four, relationship with God. Last six, about our relationship to others. There's a scripture over in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, that is so dear to every Jewish person that they write it on a little piece of paper, roll it up, put it inside of a vial or a box or whatever it might be and post it on their door so they'll see it every time they go out of the house, every time they come in the house. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. On every doorpost in Israel, you will see that. Even when we go to the hotels, outside every hotel room door, there's a... I just had one of those senior moments. M- mezuzah. There, thank you. There's a mezuzah. That's what that little box is called with the scripture in it. So that they will remember. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Well, Jesus was asked a little bit later. We're going to look at this in detail over in Matthew chapter 22. One of those trick questions that they were trying to catch him on. The Sadducees and the Pharisees came and they said, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Hmm. We got those ten. We got this Leviticus thing about love your neighbor. We got the Shema, which is that Deuteronomy passage. Actually, they say Shema, uh, but you've got that. Well, which one is the most important commandment? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he didn't stop. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. So he's got all of it there. The first four commandments. The last six commandments. The Shema. And Leviticus 19.18. All covered in those two little phrases that he said. It's all the greatest commandment. A probing response that the young man replied to to Jesus, even though it was a little self-righteous, he says in verse 20, all of these, these that you've listed, all of these I've kept, what do I still lack? What am I going to have to do? And then Jesus turned to the last of the Ten Commandments, the tenth one, the one that he had skipped. 
knowing that that one was the man's problem. He knew his heart. He knew that that was his problem. He was guilty of coveting his possessions. And because he was unwilling to sell those possessions and give money to the poor, he was obviously, or he he obviously didn't, I should say, love his neighbor as himself. That's all Jesus was asking him to do. And notice he doesn't say, I've I've read this over the years and I I declare my Bible was different because I thought it said, sell your possessions and give it all to the poor. And it doesn't. It says, give to the poor. He didn't require that he give all of it to the poor. He required that he gives a healthy donation, I guess, to the poor. But he was unwilling to do any of that. The young man seems to want almost to... uh, collect commandments that he's kept. You know, kind of like a grocery list where he could go through and check this one off and check this one off. And I did that one. I, I didn't do this one. I haven't murdered anybody today. I didn't rob a bank. I, you know, I'm doing pretty good here. Or like a trophy case where we display the goodness that we've accomplished over our lives. Like one that might be collecting coins or, or, or stamps or, or butterflies or antique furniture or whatever it is. And Jesus says to him, in essence, I mean, this, isn't, this was between the lines in, in my version here. Jesus says, all right, all right. This is the one here that will complete your collection. You want it? Here it is. Give everything away. That's all it takes. Give everything away. In order to be complete, you have to be empty. In order to have everything, you have to have nothing. In order to be fully signed up for God's service, you have to be fully signed off to everything else in life. That's just the way it works. Now, does this mean that Anyone who wants to follow Jesus has to become poor? Is that what it means? God actually gives us in our, in our churches, in our organizations, people of wealth. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. God sends people of wealth to make sure that his ministry takes place in whatever community one finds himself in. There's nothing wrong with being rich. He says it's difficult, but there's nothing wrong with it. It does mean two things, and this is the big idea we're about to close in here. The big idea, and this is, this is for anyone that wants to follow Jesus, this big idea today. So if you're not in that group of people, you don't even have to listen to this, okay? But for those that would like a big idea on how to follow Jesus, it's this. First, we have to recognize our sinfulness and know that we are condemned by God's law rather than justified by it. Recognize our sinfulness. I told you a couple of weeks ago that I was so deceived that I thought what I was doing was perfectly okay. I saw nothing wrong with what I was doing. Everybody else around me was doing it. I hadn't seen one of them get struck by lightning. They were having fun. I wanted to have fun. 
So I did it. Recognize our sinfulness and know that we are condemned by God's law, not justified by it. What do I mean by that? Well, why did God give us these Ten Commandments? There's only ten of them. And I guess if we put our hearts and minds to it, we could memorize them. You know, not, not maybe every word in them, but we could uh, know what the ten main meanings were of the Ten Commandments and recite those. And we could try to keep them. Just ten things. I mean, shoot. Again, I haven't murdered anybody or, 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 or stolen stuff from a bank. I haven't robbed a bank or anything like that. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. And then Jesus comes along and he says, well, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Oh, no. Did he really mean that? Huh. Or if you've hated somebody or talked badly about somebody, you've committed murder. There he goes again. I thought I was doing good. Those are the easy ones. He gave us the Ten Commandments to prove to us that we couldn't keep them. And if we can't keep them, if we can't do enough to be right, then we need somebody to do the right stuff for us. And that's why he sent Jesus. The commandments prove to us that we need a Savior, that we cannot save ourselves. It's impossible. We cannot do enough to save ourselves. Secondly, we have to hate anything that would keep us from following Jesus. Anything. There's some good stuff out there. But if it takes our eye off the ball, which is following Jesus... We have to get rid of it. We have to hate it. Well, I mean, it, could it be things like uh, like family? You know, I, I, I really need to. I really need to do this and spend this time with my kids and with my wife. And if it takes all your time to do that, and you have no time for Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. There's a lot of people that think they can come to the church every time the doors are open. And that's good stuff. But you can get so wrapped up in church that you forget about Jesus. Been there. Those of us that work in churches are probably the worst with that. Do we have quiet time? Do we have prayer time? Do we have Bible study time? Do we have accountability time? All of those things are a part of the ball of wax, and you can't leave any of them out. If something gets in the way of following Jesus, get rid of it. Now, for some people, that's definitely money. I mean, that's what Jesus was talking about here to the rich young ruler. For other people, it might be something entirely different. It seems like uh, it's harder for some people to give up worldly honor and fame than it is to give up money and wealth probably because they don't have any wealth so it's, it's, it's not as uh, tough a thing 
But I think every church that I've been a part of, there's been a couple of people at least in that church that thought that they were the best singers or guitar players or musicians or whatever that the world had ever seen, and they were going to make it to the top. So they record, well, this tells you how far back it goes. They, they record uh, cassettes or <laughs> no, no plastics or uh, LPs for me, but uh, cassettes or CDs, and they, that becomes their life. Maybe it's Christian music, but it's all about that instead of about following Jesus harder for them to give up the fame and the fortune that comes with that than it is to follow Jesus. Some people, the trial might be to abandon pleasures. You know, maybe that 130th pair of shoes in your wife's closet uh, could be the fastest car. I've got to have the fastest car. I've got to have the best electronic equipment available. I just can't give that up. I mean, shoot, we need that. I do ministry with that stuff. How fast do I need to get to the hospital to see somebody? Lamborghini would probably do it, you know. There are rich people in the Bible. There's a lot of them. I mean, I thought of a a handful last... Uh, week. Abraham left his native country at God's command, but he became rich and famous for it. Moses gave up the distinction and the refined pleasures of serving in the royal court now in Egypt. Why? To lead a, a, a stinking, whining group of ungrateful Israelites across the desert. Elijah left his property at the call of God through Elijah. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, abandoned his ambitious hope of being the greatest rabbi ever. He had been prepared. He went to the best schools. He had the best education. He had the very best professors. He wanted to be the most famous rabbi ever in Jewish history left all that behind to follow Jesus. The specifics might be different, but the demand is the same, and it's for all people, that demand. In Matthew chapter uh, 16, I thought I marked this because somebody stole Matthew 16 out of my book, first period here. Um... Verse 24, Jesus says, if you really, if you truly want to be saved, this is what you do. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny ourselves. Take up a cross. In Luke, I think it says daily, and follow him. What does that look like in real life? What does that really mean if I'm turning everything over to Jesus, letting him run my life and not me? I think I've got a couple of examples for you here, and I'm going to get Luke to run a video, if you would. 
Jesus, I have decided to give you this. Really? Yeah. You know whoever sits here makes all the decisions, right? I know, and I'm always making decisions, but you make the perfect decisions, so you just sit right down and start making them. Wow, I'm honored. I mean, this feels great. Kathleen, guess what? I just got my new credit card. It's time to go shopping. Oh, really? I thought your husband and you were going to pay off debt. Oh, yeah. I mean, money's kind of tight, but I figured he doesn't have to know about it. So do you want to oh. go with me? No. <laughs> no? Why? Uh, what I mean is, uh, I don't know. Um, so let me check my schedule, and then I'll get back to you. Okay, yeah, give me a call. Okay. <laughs> Kat, what's going on? What do you mean? Well, I'm kind of one cheek in it here. Look, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. You wanted me to sit here, right? Well, of course. And whoever sits here makes all the decisions? Right. So what's the problem? Uh, there's not a problem. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. Really, please, here, sit down. As long as you're sure. I'm sure. Okay, okay. so let's start over. Okay. All right. Kat, I noticed that you've been losing your temper a lot lately. Right. So, okay, Jesus, you know what? I know what you're going to say, but um, see, you, do? you don't know the whole situation, you know? Oh, I, well, all I'm saying is that your attitude is a decision. Yes, of course, but I have a lot going on right now. <laughs> well, I know you're under a lot of pressure. Pressure? Jesus, you don't understand pressure, okay? This I, isn't working, Kat. What? We can't both sit on the seat. It's either me or it's you. Okay, I know. You know, I just, I didn't think it was going to be this hard, but here, just take it. No, I'm not going to take it. You have to give it to me. Okay, here. Kathleen, make a choice. I can't. You just did. Okay. Are we really willing to turn it over to him and let him have it? Or do we think we can help him out a little bit and we have to help him out once in a while? one cheeking it with him and yeah, maybe he can't quite do it as well or as quickly or whatever as we want it done and we have to kind of butt in and help it's either his or it's yours it can't be partly his and partly yours or you've made the decision that it's all mine You've made a decision whether you realize it or not. I read a, uh, an account some time ago about how you catch a monkey. I don't know whether any of you would like to catch a mon monkey this afternoon or not. I, I don't know. Possible. But if you want to catch a money, monkey, a mon not money, monkey, if you want to catch a monkey, the first thing you do is you get a jar. And it's not just any jar, it's a special jar. It's special because the monkey should be able to get his hand into the jar and out of the jar. It should be an easy thing for the monkey to do. You know, it's got to be that. Nothing but that. Then you have to find something to put in the jar that the monkey likes, that he can't resist. Let's say... A banana. Or let's say maybe some money. Yeah. Maybe he could resist 20. That's not very much uh, if we put more in there. Uh, 
need to make it irresistible. So, uh, getting tempting now. Hmm. The monkey can't resist it. He's got to have it. So he sticks his little hand down in the jar and latches on to the money, to the banana, to the banana. All's well and good, right? So let's go home. And he can't get out of the jar. You caught a monkey. The only way that he's going to be able to get his hand free is to let go of the banana. And it comes right out. Every time he reaches back, it's there again. But he lets it go. And he's free. The rich young ruler could not let go of his possessions. And the scripture says he went away sad. He came with a heart longing, seeking to be a disciple of Jesus. He wanted so much to be a part of the kingdom of God. He said, what must I do? What do I have to do? I've done all this. What else must I do? And Jesus told him. And he couldn't let go. He just couldn't let himself do that. And went away sad. On your... um, handout on the back I've got some next steps for you take a look at these and see if you can maybe spend some time with these this week the first thing ask yourself can I get my hand out of the monkey jar second question ask yourself what must I do What is it I've got to do? I know in my heart there's something that I've got to release. There's something I'm holding on to. What is it? Third question, ask yourself, am I willing to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus? Are you really? Whatever it takes? You may have a heart's desire to be his disciple, to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to get there? And the last is, if you'll come next week, you get to hear the rest of the story because it's only half through. 